0: your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 20 of Luke chapter 2, familiar passage, wonderful passage, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, please hear this public reading of God's Word, Luke 2 starting in verse 1. Pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity to gather here and to worship You. Father, as we come to this familiar passage that we all know, I pray that we would never be bored by the repetition of this passage But Father, I I pray that we would see something of the glory, the beauty, the power of this passage, that we would be overwhelmed once again by this good news of great joy that a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. R.C. Sproul, at the beginning of his sermon on this passage of Scripture, he said something like this. He said, you have heard this passage, you've read this passage again and again and again. We know this passage, but he said this. He said, I hope we never get tired of hearing this passage of Scripture because this part of Luke's narrative describes the most significant birth in the history of humanity. Now, every birth of a living child is a marvelous event. It is indeed. We've celebrated multiple births in the life of our church. It is a marvelous event. But never since the world began was a birth so marvelous as the birth of of Christ. In itself, it was a miracle. God was made manifest. God was made manifest in the flesh. The blessings that this brought into the world, that this birth brought into the world, were unspeakable. The incarnation is meant to be a never ending cause for gratefulness and worship. Jesus set aside his glory to reconcile us to God forever. Nate Saint, who was a missionary in Ecuador in the 1950s, He was one of the five men who died trying to reach the Warani or the Alka Indians, as they were called then. He was a missionary pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship. From everything that I've read about, Nate Saint, he seems to have been a very godly man. I think he died in his early 30s. He left behind a wife and three children, but he just seemed to be a godly man, loved to get the gospel out. He seemed to use every opportunity there. He's flying from mission station to mission station, and one time there was a bunch of soldiers there, and he was like... Can I just talk to you guys real quick? And he got the gospel out and handed out gospel tracts. That's just the kind of guy Nate was. So he died in January of 1956. This is Christmas, 1955. He writes this letter home to his parents and to his in-laws. Here's a portion of that letter from Nate saying He says this, Christmas is in the air in Shell Mera. That is the mission station where he and his wife and three children were. He says, we are putting up the little tree in the living room and the kids are all excited the tape recorder is playing the familiar Christmas carols and hymns and we feel creeping over us the thrill of that great mystery that God should send his only son to take on our likeness in a stable shame on us for getting so used to the story that we fail to get goosebumps when we contemplate such incomprehensible condescension. You see what Nate is getting at? Shame on us when we fail to be moved when we consider such incomprehensible condescension. One last quote before we get to my main points. Jab Packer has written a famous quote on the Incarnation. He says, it is here at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word was made flesh. God became man. The more you think about it, The more you think about the incarnation, says Packer, the more staggering it gets. I've found that to be so true. The more you focus in, think on, dwell on the incarnation of Jesus, the more amazing, the more staggering it gets. Liliana and I were watching a movie just a few weeks ago, and I'd been thinking about Luke too, thinking about the Incarnation. It was an old movie. And in this movie, 1950s movie, there's a baby born towards the end of that that movie, and they pick this baby up. The arms are flailing around, and this baby is crying. And I thought of Jesus, and I thought, how can it be that Jesus would come and be born as a baby? Amazing. So I hope today we'll feel the thrill of the Incarnation creeping over us, washing over us this afternoon. Four main points of emphasis today. Number one, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God on display at the birth of Jesus. So the sovereignty of God on display at the birth of Jesus. Number two, we're going to look at the humility of Jesus and the greatness of God's love. Humility of Jesus, greatness of God's love. Point three is like a three-part point. We're going to look at the shepherds, the good news they receive, and their response. The shepherd, the good news they receive, their response. Point number four, we'll look briefly at Mary And her response, so point number one, the sovereignty of God on display at the birth of Jesus, let's look at the first five verses of Luke 2. "'In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David.' to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. There was a song written about six years ago by Sovereign Grace Music called Who Would Have Dreamed, Christmas song. The first stanza of this song says this, On a starlit hillside, shepherds watched their sheep. Slowly, David's city drifted off to sleep. But to this little town, the town of Bethlehem, but to this little town of no great renown, the Lord had a promise to keep. The Lord had a promise to keep to Bethlehem, or you could say the Lord had a prophecy to fulfill in Bethlehem. What's that prophecy? It's Micah 5, verse 2, written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Micah 5, verse 2. Here's the prophecy. Micah 5, verse 2 says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So here is the prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So think about this for a second. God, in His sovereignty, He could have chosen a Jewish girl from Bethlehem, and she would have given birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. It would have been easy, right, if He would have chosen a Jewish girl from Bethlehem. But God chose Mary, and Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth. Therefore, God, in His sovereignty, must get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, think about this. He could have done some simple thing. He could have done some simple providential thing to get Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He could have done a family thing, a business transaction which would have gotten them there. But what does God do in His sovereignty to get them there? Verse 1 of chapter 2, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the most powerful emperor in the world at that time, issues this decree that all the world should be registered. So remember Mark said last Sunday that God can use non-Christians to do His bidding. God can use non-Christians to do His bidding. Well, here is the most powerful emperor in the world acting out the decree of God himself. He is doing God's bidding. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So here you have God turning the emperor's heart to issue this decree to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at just the right time for her to give birth to the Messiah in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy in Micah 5 verse 2, we see that the birth of Jesus is controlled by a sovereign God who rules empires. But let me read verses 6 and 7. This will tie into my second point, but it also ties into the first point. Verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So remember the prophecy, Micah 5, 2. The Messiah has got to be born in Bethlehem. What does God do? He doesn't do some simple thing. He does this massive thing. He turns the emperor's heart, most powerful emperor in the land, to issue this decree to get them there. Now think about that. If God can turn the emperor's heart, certainly God in his sovereignty could have provided a room for Joseph and Mary. He could have easily provided a room for Jesus to be born in, but he doesn't. Why? Because this is planned. This is intentional. Why? Because Jesus is to be born in the lowest Possible condition because that's the position Jesus will serve us all the way to the cross and he will save his people. So we see the sovereignty of God on display at the birth of Jesus. Application from this first point what can we draw from this? I would just simply say that we can rest our souls in the thought that our times are in God's hands. We can trust him, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign and good. Point two the humility of Jesus and the greatness of God's love. Again, verses six and seven great verses. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The humility of Jesus is powerfully on display at his birth. Now think about this question. What kind of welcome did Jesus deserve when He was born in Bethlehem? Have you ever thought about that? What kind of welcome did Jesus actually deserve when He was born in Bethlehem? One pastor answers, he says, Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship Him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe come to His cradle and give Him praise. He is God the Son. Anything less than absolute acknowledgement of His royal person is an insult to His divine dignity. He deserved to have every person from every nation come to worship Him, every creature coming to His cradle to give Him praise. That's what He deserved. What kind of welcome did Jesus receive? Verse 7, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped Him in swaddling cloths and laid Him in a manger because there was no place for them. In the inn. picture the scene. Mary and Joseph have traveled a long way to get to Bethlehem. Mary feels labor pains come upon her. They need a room. Joseph is knocking on the innkeeper's door. The innkeeper comes to the door, and Joseph says, We need a room. He said, I'm sorry. The census has the town overcrowded. We don't have any rooms available. He says, Please, my bride is about to give birth. We'll take anything and he says well we do have a stable in the back and he says we'll take it so joseph goes to mary and says let's go and she says do they have a room and he says no but we'll make it work and they head back to this stable ritual and physical uncleanness as marcus said all around you can picture the stench in the air joseph tries to make a clean spot for mary to give birth and it's joseph and mary And the Son of God is born in this condition. One pastor says, Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasp God's Son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he grasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. As the song says, Lord of the universe, breathing the dust of earth. So we should see the humility of Jesus powerfully on display at his birth. As we see Jesus humbling himself to unimaginable depths at his birth. Everything about his birth points to obscurity, poverty, and rejection. The entrance of Jesus into the world is against the backdrop of humiliation. Humiliation in his entrance into the world, humiliation at his exit at the cross. That is the life of of Jesus. But we should also see the greatness of God's love on display at the birth of Jesus. How so? How can we see the greatness of God's love on display at the birth of Jesus? Well, we have rebelled against God. We have worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As Isaiah says, my people have committed two evils, Two evils. We have, number one, we have forsaken the fountain of living waters. We have turned away from God who is the fountain of living waters and we've hewed out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we've forsaken the fountain of living waters. We've gone to the broken cisterns of the world, this mucky, dirty, nasty water, and we have said, satisfy me, satisfy me, when the fountain of living waters is there. And in order to rescue us, the very people who have rebelled against Him, what does God do to rescue us? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is nothing so moving and so wonderful in the whole of the Scripture as this. God so loved the world that He gave. God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His Son. He prepares His Son not to be born in glory, but to be born in poverty. He gives His Son not to be born in the palace with riches, but to be born in a feeding trough. He gives His Son not to be wrapped in beautiful baby garments, but to be wrapped with rough bandage-like strips of cloth. And I can't help but think, picturing Jesus being wrapped tightly with these rough bandage-like strips of cloth, I can't help but think there is a day coming when those same arms will be spread out wide as He is nailed to the cross for our sins. So when we come to the manger scene, we should be reminded of the humility of Jesus, but we should be reminded of the greatness of God's love in sending His Son to die in our place. What's some application that we can draw From these two points, I think we should say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Thanksgiving and adoration and praise should be welling up inside of us when we consider that God sent His Son to save us. But if we are struggling with pride, which my guess is all of us in this room struggle with pride from one degree to another, or we all have the tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, if that is us… And I say we come to Bethlehem and we come to the feeding trough and look at Jesus. Stare at the Son of God in a feeding trough. And as we look at Jesus, the pride will begin to be chipped away. Someone has famously said, how can anyone be proud when standing next to the cross? I would say, how can anyone be proud standing next to this feeding trough with the Son of God inside? The message of the incarnation is that we should humble ourselves and give of ourselves for others. Point number three, the shepherds, the good news they receive in their response. So the shepherds, verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So shepherds, it shouldn't be surprising to us after this incredible birth, it shouldn't be surprising to us that God would choose an angel to reveal this good news of great joy to the world. That shouldn't be surprising. But what should be surprising, perhaps to us, is who God chose to reveal this good news of great joy to. He chose shepherds. He chose simple shepherds. One pastor said He chose ordinary sinners like you and me, is who God chose to reveal this good news of great joy to. So simple shepherds, ordinary sinners. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great joy. Fear. If we would have been there, we would have been filled with great fear as well when this angel shows up on the scene. So these shepherds are filled with great fear. But what's this good news that they're going to receive? Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You see at the end of verse 9, it says they were filled with great fear. Within then verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. These sort of go together, great fear and great joys, as if the angel is saying, take your great fear and turn it into great joy. Turn your great fear into great joy. Why should they turn their great fear into great joy? What is the ground of this great joy that they should have? Well, the ground of this great joy is this, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ The Lord. Here is the ground of this great joy that they should have. A Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born this day. That is the ground of the great joy that they should have. So I want to focus in on these three titles given to Mary's son. Three titles Savior, Christ, Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. Number one, He is Savior. He is Savior. He is a deliverer. He is someone who rescues people. From destruction. So obviously, this implies that we need a Savior. We are in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus came to save us. As Greg just talked about in Matthew chapter 1, you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. D.A. Carson has written famously on this. He said, If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor, but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a Savior. Jesus came to save us from our sin, from Satan, and from the wrath of God. This is good news of great joy, that a Savior has come to save us from sin, the wrath of God, and Satan. Here is part of the ground of this great joy that we should have. A Savior has come, who is Christ. That's the second title. Who is Christ? What does this mean? He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the long-promised Messiah who has come. So He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. So hang with me on this for just a second. One pastor said it like this, when God chose someone in the Old Testament for a special task, He would anoint them. When God chose a man to be king, He anointed them. When God chose someone to be a prophet, He anointed them. When God chose someone to be a priest, He anointed them. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the prophet, priest, and king. This little child in the feeding trough was the greatest king the world will ever know. The greatest priest the world will ever know. The greatest prophet the world will ever know, all summed up in one person. He is the king of all kings. He is the priest who alone can give us access to God and the prophet who spoke for God and only for God. That was this child. He is the prophet, priest, and king. This is good news that the long-promised Messiah has come, that the anointed one has come to give us access to God. This is good news of great joy. But lastly, the title is Lord, who is Christ the Lord. This may be the most astonishing of all three of them. Luke uses the word Lord in the first two chapters of his gospel 24 times. 24 times he uses the word Lord. And almost every time he uses the word Lord, he is referring to the God of Israel. He's talking about the God of Israel almost every time, but not this time. Not this time. This time the word Lord is being given to the baby in the manger is to be called Lord. So when we come to this feeding trough and see this real baby inside. He has been given the title Lord. This is God in human flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. The astonishing announcement is that this Messiah who has been born as a baby is also the Lord God Himself. This is good news of great joy that God has come, that the Son of God has come to save us. He and He alone can save us and He has come to save us. What is going to be a sign For these shepherds, how are they going to recognize Jesus? Verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There were likely other babies born that night in Bethlehem. So how are they going to differentiate Jesus from these other babies that were born that night? Well, He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Well, that pretty much rules out most of the babies, but maybe there were one or two babies that were wrapped in swaddling cloths. How else are they going to identify him and lying in a manger? Certainly there would only be one baby in all of Bethlehem lying in a manger. Certainly there would only be one baby in such an unspeakable environment after birth, except for this baby. You see, we can recognize Jesus the same way the shepherds recognize Jesus. How is that? by His humility. When we come to Bethlehem and see Jesus inside, we know this is the Christ God has sent, but especially when we go to Calvary and see Him dying in agony and shame, we know that this is the Christ that God has sent to save His people. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is Please Now, I know the text doesn't explicitly say that the angels are singing here, but I have a suspicion that they are singing here. I have a feeling this is a heavenly choir that has burst onto the sing, scene there, and they are glorifying and praising God. One pastor said, imagine what joy these angels had going out in the middle of the night to, share, to scare these shepherds half to death with the glory of God, and they're singing. But he said they were singing in a new key this night. They were singing about God's grace to sinners this night. This is pure, perfect, holy praise given to God alone because He is supremely worthy, because He has sent Jesus to save sinners. So they're singing in a new key about God's grace to sinners. So we've seen the shepherds, the good news they receive. How are they going to respond? How are they going to respond? Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known us. How are they going to respond after this incredible scene? What are they going to do? Well, they respond collectively, spontaneously together. They're saying to each other, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. They're all saying at the same time, let's go and see this thing. But don't miss the end of verse 15, which the Lord has made known to us. You see, they never would have known this good news of great joy unless God revealed it to them. If the angel had not appeared to them while they were out in the fields, the shepherds never would have come to Christ. What this shows us is how much we and how much others need the preaching of the gospel. To understand what God has done, we need, and others need, to have someone explain the gospel. And then verse 16, I love the beginning of verse 16, and they went with haste. I love that. I picture them racing each other. You know, let's race First one there, they're tripping over each other. They're running as fast as they can to Bethlehem. They're knocking on doors. Has a baby been born? Has a baby been born? Is there a baby in a feeding trough here? We don't know how long it took them to find Jesus, but eventually they find the spot. Can you imagine the contrast between that angel choir and Jesus? What a contrast that must have been for them. They see Mary. They see Joseph. They're not there to see Mary and Joseph, of course. They're there to see the baby, and they see the baby. Again, verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. That's why they're there, lying in a manger. Verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But don't miss verse 17. This is an incredible verse. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. RC Sproul said they told every single person they knew. They didn't do just do evangelism by example. They opened their mouths and told everyone what they heard and what they saw. They went around everywhere saying, "The Savior has been born. The Savior has been born. The long-promised Messiah, he is here. He has been born in a feeding trough." Come and see. The Savior is here. They could not restrain themselves. This was the greatest news they'd ever heard. They had to proclaim it. They had to tell everyone they knew. They couldn't hold the gospel in. You see, they took the same gospel they'd been given by the angel and they started giving it to others. This is how God saves sinners. As soon as we come to faith in Christ, we start sharing the good news. Let me just go to verse 20 before we get to some application on the shepherds. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see, the story of the shepherds, it ends with a great and glorious joy. This is what the gospel does. It brings us to faith in Christ, and this in turn leads to witness and worship. First we come and see, and then we know for sure we go and tell, glorifying and praising God Along the way, some questions for us to consider. What is the gospel doing in our lives? Are we sharing our faith? Are we spreading the good news about Jesus? Are we praising God, glorifying Him for the gift of salvation? What are some application points that we can take away from the shepherds? Well, if you're not a Christian, we'll start there. If you're not a Christian, what is an application point that you can take from the shepherds? Well, you see, the shepherds, they heard the good news of the gospel But they went and they made haste and they investigated the truth claims of what the angel told them. They investigated it. They looked into it. So if you're not a Christian and you're watching or you're here, I would say look into the truth claims of Christianity. I would say get one of the Gospels, perhaps the Gospel of John. Grab a Christian friend of yours and ask them if they will read the Gospel of John with you and you can ask questions to them and look into the Gospel of John and see if Jesus is who He claimed to be. And when you find out that Jesus is indeed who He claimed to be, then turn from your sins and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you will have new life in Christ. And all of a sudden, you will find yourself just like the shepherds. You will go out proclaiming this message to your friends. You will be telling them this good news of what Jesus has done, and you will be returning to your work, but you will return differently. You will be glorifying and praising God for the gift of salvation. What about us as Christians? What can we learn from the shepherds? Well, we should love to tell others of the gospel. We should love to point others to the Savior. And we should be glorifying and praising God for our salvation. I could mention all kinds of people here, but I picked Jim Elliott to mention. I love Jim Elliott. I love his passion. Jim Elliott was one of the five men, along with Nate Saint, who died trying to reach the Warrani, trying to reach the Alka Indians in 1956. He was just 28 years old. But if you know Jim Elliott, you know he had a passion to tell others the gospel. He loved to tell others of Jesus. He's at Whedon College. I know I've told this story before, but I love this story. He's at Whedon College. He's visiting non-Christian friends in an apartment, a little bitty apartment room. And it's Jim Elliot in the midst of several non-Christian guys, probably in their 20s. And Jim is right in the middle of it. And all these guys are smoking. There's cigarette smoke all in the air. And I see Jim Elliot there. I picture him beaming with joy as he is talking about the Savior for several hours with these guys, you know, getting the smoke out of his face, talking about the gospel. He said something in his journals about how he would gladly spend several hours choking on cigarette smoke to tell others of the Savior. He loved to speak of the Savior. He is finally ready for him to go to the mission field. He's been praying about this. He's just been just ants in his pants to go to the mission field. He finally goes. One of my favorite parts in his journals, he's on that boat, him and Pete Fleming, and he's just overjoyed that God has called him to the mission field. He can't hardly believe it. He can't hardly keep the joy in. And he goes to Ecuador. He learns Spanish. He learns Quechua. And he's ministering amongst the Quechua Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. And what is he doing? He is proclaiming the gospel message. They don't even know what crucifixion is, but that doesn't stop. Jimmy builds uh, a cross out of sticks and he lies down on this cross and he's saying, this is what Christ has done. He has died like this in our place, proclaiming the gospel message to the Quechua Indians. One day, Nate Saint came by their mission station dropping off supplies, and Jim is telling him, I think, of advances of the gospel amongst the Quechua or something like that. And Nate said, Praise God, man, because if the gospel's not getting out, we better pack up and go home. They're there to get the gospel out. And then they hear about this violent tribe killed everybody who's come. But Jim wants to go. He wants to go take the gospel to this violent tribe. So Nate Saint has some extra time, he's flying around, he flies over, he sees an area where it looks like people live here. And it looks like, yes, this is, this is them, and they begin to call, these are the neighbors they call them, the neighbors, we've spotted the neighbors. They begin to exchange gifts, they begin to say warani phrases from the plane, and they're exchanging gifts, and everything seems to be going great, and Jim is just like, we gotta go, we gotta go now. And these five guys are chosen. Pete Fleming is the most conservative of them. And he's saying, wait a minute, we need to hold on. We need to hold on. Jim is just chomping at the bit, ready to go. Finally, they all decide it's going to be January 1956 before the rainy season comes because the sandbar will be sort of covered up with water. They won't be able to land there. So this is Operation Alka and this is the sandbar. January 8th is when they're going to go. But the question is, Nate Saint can only take one person in on that first flight down. Only one man in. So the question is, who's going to go first? Well, I think Pete was kind of ruled out. He's the more conservative one. Roger Udarian knew a different tribal language, so he was ruled out. So it's Ed McCulley, Jim Elliott. They both want to be the first one on the ground. So they draw straws and Ed McCulley wins. But Jim is undeterred. He's talking to Nate. Nate's very safety conscious. He's like, Nate, what about the weight difference? You know, Ed's 6'3". I'm 5'10". You know, he weighs more than me. Wouldn't that make a big deal? Well, Nate says, well, 15 pounds would make a difference. Jim runs over, grabs the scale. Put the scale down, we're going to weigh on the scale. Ed Ed gets on, Jim gets on, Ed was only seven pounds more, and Jim's like, "You've been losing weight." Uh, so Ed gets to go first, and they well, before they left I love this before they left, they sang a hymn together. "We rest on thee, and in thy name we go." And their voices ring out. and they go and they land and they build a treehouse. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And Friday, January 6th, three warani come out. Three Aukas, as they would have called them. I think they're stunned. They can't believe this is happening. And, of course, the first missionary across the river is Jim Elliott. He's running across the river to welcome the three into their camp. And what a wonderful day it was. They take the man George up on a flight, and he flies over his own territory. People, I think, probably were stunned that they see George it wasn't his real name, but that's the name the missionaries gave to him flying over uh, his friends. Everything seemed to be going wonderfully. And then Saturday, January 7th, nothing happens. They're waiting. And then Sunday was the day. Nate flies over. He sees a group coming, but they don't have any weapons. He thinks this is great. He radios home, today's the day. And, of course, it was. It was maybe around 3 in the afternoon. that Sunday. They're all violently killed on that little Palm Beach area. But you see, they had to go. The gospel was too good. They could not keep it in. They couldn't restrain it. They had to take it. And they die. But Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim, who is just as bold, just as courageous as those men. She's praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Is there something you want me to do about the Alcas? And it was clear God wanted her to do something. And a few years later, she and her daughter of about three and Rachel St. Nate's sister would go and live amongst the people who killed, in Rachel's case, her brother, and in Elizabeth's case, her husband. But they came with the same gospel those men had taken because they couldn't restrain themselves. They had to tell this gospel message, and they were able to tell the gospel, and they saw genuine conversions there. So the application would be, I hope, will be a little bit more like the shepherds. I hope we will be a little bit more like those five men, Jim and Pete and Nate and Ed and Roger and Elizabeth and Rachel Saint. I hope we will love to point others to the Savior. I hope we'll love to tell of the gospel. I hope that we will glorify and praise God for the gift of salvation. Last point, Mary and her response, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them, in her heart, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You see, Mary, she's looking into this feeding trough. She sees this baby who has just come out of her womb. And she's thinking, This baby is the Son of the Most High God. This baby is the Savior of the world. This baby is the anointed Messiah. This baby is God the Lord. She's just pondering it. She's thinking deeply about it. She thought deeply about God's redemptive purpose and how God had promised a Savior, and a Savior had finally come. So here's an application that we can take from Mary. This is another pastor who said it like this. After those initial days of euphoria, after our conversion, as we grow in our Christian life, we begin to think more deeply about the realities of who He is. Here I am, you know, as a Christian, a long time, after many, many years of ministry, and I continue in my reading, I never get enough. I have an insatiable desire to know more about God and Christ just to plumb the depths of all there is to know and to ponder those things. And when someone is truly converted, I think there's never enough. There never comes a point of satisfaction. As Paul said, that I may know him, that I may know him. And somebody might have said to Paul, Paul, you know him better than everybody else knows him. And Paul probably would have said, yes, but I don't know him like I'd like to know him. Mary illustrates that hungry heart that wants to understand the depth of this great salvation. Invasion. I hope we love to think on the Savior. I hope we love to think on the Word of God, to ponder and treasure and soak in these things. I hope we never get enough. So we saw the sovereignty of God on display at the birth of Jesus. That prophecy had to be fulfilled. What does God do? Turns to the emperor's heart to get them to Bethlehem. But he also, in his sovereignty, closes all the rooms. No rooms available. Why? Because Jesus is to be born in the lowest possible condition. That's the position He's going to serve us to the cross, and He will save His people. We saw the humility of Jesus. We saw the greatness of God's love in giving His Son to save us. We saw the shepherds, the good news they receive. And their response, ordinary sinners like us, that's who God chose to reveal this news to. Good news of great joy. What's the ground of this great joy? A Savior who is Christ, the Lord, has been born. How do they respond? Collectively, spontaneously, let's go. They made haste, and then they went and told this message. They couldn't keep it in, and they returned, glorifying and praising God. Mary, and her response, she soaks, she treasures in these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, your only Son, not to be born in glory, but to be born in humility, not to be born in a palace, but to be born in a feeding trough. Father, help us to be freshly amazed at the humility of Jesus. and Help us to be stunned by your love to sinners like us who've turned away from you, the fountain of living waters. We've gone to the broken cisterns of the world, but in order to rescue us, you gave your Son to save us. Father, help us to be more like the shepherds. They had joy. They couldn't contain themselves. They had to proclaim the gospel message. Father, make us more like the shepherds, more like those five men, and more like Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, loving to point others to the Savior, and I pray that we would be glorifying and praising you for the gift of salvation and help, and help us to be a little more like Mary, pondering and treasuring these things. We ask this all in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Please bow your head with me. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray quietly and then I will close us in prayer. we are overwhelmed. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for stooping to be laid in a feeding trough upon your birth and then to be stretched out on a cross for us. So God, thank you for this time we had to focus on these truths, and I pray as we step into this week that you would give us the courage and the joy and the boldness of the shepherds, that you would make us like Mary to treasure up and meditate on these infinities, these immensities that the infinite God became a human being and was born in our midst. So God, please Allow us to honor you this week. Allow the reality of this to be in us, coming through us, and help us to love others well. Help us to love family and friends and neighbors well in these coming days. And I pray you'd be honored in our midst. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.